0: back to the Jewish Growth podcast. I'm Rabbi Ken Brodkin. It is great to be with you today. As a Jewish people in every generation, we transmit what may be the oldest living spiritual tradition, a system of wisdom and ethics faithful to our ancient past. And we also live in an age of intense scientific and technological advancement, a range of disciplines that are advancing before our very eyes if Jews living in earlier parts of the modern era face enlightenment and emancipation, today we meet a high-tech world with ever-evolving beliefs and morals. And perhaps one of the most consequential questions that we face as Jews in our life is how do we respond to modernity? And the truth is that every part of the Jewish people is responding in some form or another, whether Satmar Hasidim, Reform Judaism, Modern Orthodoxy, Secular, Post-Denominational, we're all grappling with modernity and just doing it in different ways. Confronting modernity is a wide-ranging conversation and important to our personal Jewish growth trajectory. So stay with me today. We're going to look at three important tools that we need in our path as we grapple with the world around us. Dealing with modernity did not start with the Enlightenment a few hundred years ago. In every epoch, going all the way back to the Torah, confronting the world around us as it exists in the moment, as part and parcel of being a Jew. This Shabbos we're going to read by Yigash, where the two protagonists of the story can be viewed as two different approaches to modernity. And as we saw last week, Yosef experienced a sudden rise to become the second-in-command to Paro. He was that first outsider Jew to rise in the ranks, a recurring theme in our history. And throughout, Yosef never loses his identity, constantly attributes his abilities to Hashem, As our rabbis point out, the name of heaven was regularly on his lips. And this is actually an innovation of Yosef that Yaakov recognizes in his son, in his grandchildren. When he comes to Egypt, Yaakov blesses Menasheh and Ephraim, the children of Yosef. And Yaakov famously states, the malach who went before him in exile will redeem these children. To this day, we invoke Ephraim and Menasheh when we bless our own children Ephraim and Menashe being the first kids raised in exile. You might think that these Egyptian-raised kids would become regular Egyptians, and instead they become the example of Jewish thriving in the heart of Egyptian exile. Yosef and his sons embody one approach to living in Egypt, and there's another. In the Haggadah, we note that the Jewish people were Mitsuyanim. They were distinct in Egypt. Midrash teaches us that the Jewish people were distinct by means of dress, names, and language. Critically, the Jewish people lived in a distinct location within Egypt, namely Goshen. And the Torah says that Yaakov sends Yehuda, Lahoros Lafan of Goshna. Rashi explains these words to mean that Yehuda was sent ahead Lahorot to establish a place of teaching for the Jewish people in the locale of Goshen. And so while Yosef was residing in the king's court, Yehuda established this separate Jewish society and the Rambam, Maimonides, and Hilkos of Zara writes that Avram established the first base midrash, the first study hall of the Jewish people. That was continued by Yaakov, who eventually appointed Levi as the teacher of the base midrash that Yehuda established in Goshen. And so even when many of the tribes began to become assimilated, Levi remained separate. So Yosef, on the one hand, embodies this idea of remaining devoted to God while living in the heart of Egyptian society. Yehuda, and eventually Levi, on the other hand, represent the idea of creating their own separate hood, Goshen, while living in Mitzrayim. These can be understood as two differing approaches to modernity. One approach is to be immersed in the modern world and remain a Nasi Elohim, a prince of God. And another way is to build something outside of modernity, so to speak, creating a Goshen, a spiritual cocoon. Yet, we can immediately see the problem with both of these approaches. For most people, it's hard to be that person of God when you're immersed in a foreign culture. And on the other hand, building a separate society does not completely shield the person from the outside world. As our rabbis point out, even in Goshen, the Jews became highly assimilated. All the more so in our times with the ubiquitous internet, where we all have constant access to the so-called outside world. Besides, who really believes that any group is an island unto itself? Whether you live in Teaneck or Lakewood, there's no question that we're all impacted by modernity just in different ways. And still, Yosef and Yehuda do give us different ways of thinking about our approach to modernity. And perhaps the biggest lesson of their lives is the fact that there is no silver bullet answer as to how best make it and thrive as a Jew in Egypt. But there is a critical thing to consider, and that is, what do we even mean by modernity? If modernity refers to the broad non-Jewish culture, clearly there's facets of that culture that are good, other parts of it that are bad, and other parts of it which may be neutral. Non-Jewish society encompasses medicine and science and a wide range of life-saving disciplines. It also encompasses very negative things antithetical to Judaism, such as a culture where our teens are taught to focus on their body as the center of their identity and a whole range of misguided ideologies. And still other parts of society feel more neutral, like the local sports league. In other words, approaching modernity is a multifaceted project. In many places, our sages emphasize toil in the study of Torah as a foundation for Jewish life. And at the same time, at the end of the second chapter of Pirkei Avos, Rabbi Eliezer hints to a need for knowledge of the outside world. As he says, "Have a shakud lulmo Torah, be diligent to learn the Torah, v'da masha tashiv li apikorus, and know how to answer an apikorus, v'da lifne miat ha'ome amel, and know before whom you toil." This Mishnah teaches us that we ought to know how to answer an apikorus, a Greek word originally referring to a heretic. The verse in Eov states that a person was born to toil, and our rabbis remark that that is the toil of Torah. As Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, If you've learned much Torah, don't take credit for yourself because this is what you were born to do. But here in the second chapter of Pirkei Avos, Rabbi Eliezer adds a new dimension. We need to toil in the study of Torah in such a way that we will know how to answer the heretic. Now, ostensibly a heretic could be a sophisticated person. It would follow then that knowing how to answer is a quite significant demand to make of a person. And the Maharal of Prague explains this idea even further. He writes as follows, Just as there is a mitzvah for a man to learn and acquire Torah, which is the Torah of truth, so too it is fitting for him to nullify and negate the ideas of falsehood from the world, so that truth will grow. For if falsehood is left to be, he continues, in the end, falsehood will destroy the truth and nullify it. Therefore, Rabbi Eliezer warned us to not allow falsehood to just be, and that we should know how to answer a heretic. The Maharal is making a foundational point here. Not only do we need to integrate a positive understanding of Torah, but we also need to understand it so well that we will be able to negate opposition to the Torah. It would follow then that we need to be in touch with how the Apichorus thinks. And that sheds some light on our approach to modernity. How could we possibly answer the heretic if we don't first understand their thinking? For example, Rabbi Tobias Singer has devoted his career to combating Jews for Jesus. How could he effectively contend against those who seek to convert Jews to Christianity without his broad knowledge, including his great expertise in the Christian Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should all become experts in Christianity, but we need to have an awareness of the ideas that are impacting us. There is a basic reality in life. Be it Egypt in the days of Yosef or our own time as Jewish society is porous. The world out there is impacting us. And in light of that, It's essential for us to have an understanding of the non-Jewish world so that we can be equipped to think and respond to a world that, at the end of the day, is touching us. And we need to study Torah with enough, enough depth that we can think critically about issues that are spinning around us. Case in point, I've never sent my kids to university to study with Bible critics. On the other hand, I have discussed the topic of Bible criticism with my own family. And the impact of these conversations is that there's an awareness to an important issue, an openness to talk about it and address it, and most importantly, to not be afraid of it. It's not taboo. And so there's a starting awareness and an openness to engage. To use a very different sort of example, consider the phenomenon of online pornography. It's certainly good that young people should know about this dangerous phenomenon and how it impacts people. On the other hand, firsthand experience with pornography is, by all accounts, harmful. Of course, not everything out there is heresy. In the very same Pirkei Avos, our sages touched upon a distinction between secular wisdom and Torah wisdom. As the Mishnah says, "Chachma beGoyim Tamin, And if you find wisdom amongst the nations, you should believe it. If you find Torah amongst the nations, the Mishnah says, "Do not accept it." When there's legitimate wisdom amongst the nations, we should accept that, and if we fail to do so, that can be very harmful. In fact, Beryl Wine, Rabbi Beryl Wine cited the example of the church rejecting Galileo and taking the position that the earthless flat. The church was eventually proven wrong, of course, and that itself proved to be detrimental to the church's standing in society. And so from all of this, we can see a few principles or tools that are helpful for us. First, there are movements that are antithetical to Torah. We need to be aware of them, and we need to be sophisticated enough within the Torah to answer those. Shunning the outside world is an unlikely way to answer the heretic, even if it's just the heretic that's within in ourselves. Secondly, when the nations have wisdom, we can and should accept that wisdom where we find it, though we need to think critically. And there's a third idea as well, and that is that the Torah, at the end of the day, is a guide. The Torah guides us, teaching us what our priorities are in life, so we can discern between good and bad, between what to focus on and what's not worthy of our time. And this idea can be applied to all areas, but perhaps most easily to parts of non-Jewish society that seem neutral. There are parts of modernity that don't seem particularly negative or positive from a Jewish point of view. And in those cases, the Torah is a guide. Take the sports culture that pervades society. On the one hand, sports can be a very good and healthy outlet for people. On the other hand, sports culture can become a pervading sense of identity, and that's where we need the guidance of Torah. Torah guidance teaches us that we are an amkadosh, we're holy people. When the sport, culture, identity of Greece swept through ancient Israel, the Maccabees insisted that our identity is not the naked body at the gymnasium, but rather a life of dedication to Torah and to Mitzvos. Rav Nachman of Breslov teaches us that the entire world is a narrow bridge. In our approach to modernity, we are walking on a narrow bridge. Both shunning modernity or immersing ourselves in it pose unique challenges. Perhaps no one embodies successfully navigating this, this narrow bridge better than Maimonides the Rambam. In the Mishnah Torah, Hilkos Deus, Rambam writes that we are all influenced by our surroundings and should make every effort to avoid a culture that contradicts Jewish values. He also writes that it it's a mitzvah to cling to Torah scholars, for when we do so, we are clinging to God's presence. And yet, who knew better how to respond to modern science and philosophy than the Rambam? The Rambam was not only a doctor, but his guide to the perplexed and his Igarit Taman letter to the Yemenite community, were both examples of him using great secular knowledge to respond to the modern issues of his times. But we don't need to become the Rambam to achieve this. For each of us, we can find in our own life how to live this balance. We can observe and study the world around us, even without being immersed in its negative parts. And moreover, we can toil in the Torah, seeking its timeless guidance as it leads us in navigating a narrow but very beautiful bridge. Thank you for being with me today. We'll be back next week. I'm Ken Brodkin, and this is the Jewish Growth Podcast.